If you have a copy of uh, God's Word, please turn to Acts chapter 13. We have been uh, making our way through this book, uh, hopefully, and you've been seeing that as these early followers of Jesus followed him out into the world. Uh, so I hope that this, uh, that this study is also uh, changing the way that you think about following Jesus out into the world. And if you're here this morning and you haven't, uh, have never come to know or trust in Jesus, I hope that you're seeing uh, how Jesus impacts the life of those who follow him. Uh, but we are in Acts chapter 13. We are continuing Paul's uh, first missionary journey. Paul made three of these journeys around the Mediterranean Sea. This was his first one, and he took it with Barnabas last week. And we'll throw the map up there for all you visual learners. Uh, last week, we were on the island of Cyprus. Paul and Barnabas were. Uh, and at the, in verse 13 uh, of, this, uh, of this chapter, of 1313, uh, Paul and Barnabas sail north, uh, and upon landing in what is modern-day Turkey, they make their way north into the region of Galatia. So if you're familiar with the Bible, the book of Galatians, Paul will later write a letter to these churches that he is founding uh, in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Um, so they made their way up uh, to another city named Antioch, and this is why... We're using a map because it's very easy to get confused with all these place names, places that most of us will probably only ever hear of. This is a different Antioch. Uh, Paul and Barnabas launched from Antioch over in Syria. Um, you can't see it on that map. Uh, but this is, uh, this is Antioch uh, in the region of Pisidia. So uh, it is the Sabbath day, uh, the day when Jews would gather in the synagogue uh, they would hear readings from what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They would hear a reading from the law and from the prophets, and then someone would stand up uh, and give an exhortation or sermon, which is exactly what Paul is asked to do. The leaders of the synagogue come to Paul, and they ask him if he has a word of encouragement to share with the people in the synagogue, and he does. Uh, and we're going to pick that up in verse 16 of Acts 13. So let's give our attention to God's word. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, 
sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May he bless it as we uh, listen to it and as it is preached. Amen. So it's a lot of words. I'm about to preach a sermon about a sermon. Uh, this is Paul's first sermon. Uh, it is, uh, we, we've already, if you've been with us through this series, we've seen uh, sermons from Peter. We've seen a sermon from Stephen. Uh, but this is Paul's first recorded sermon. Um, and there's a lot of words here. There's a lot of ground to cover. But what is, the, what is the unifying theme? What is Paul at pains to communicate to these people? What is his word of encouragement? Uh, and, I'm, and I'm calling this good news for good people because these would be good people as far as we could tell. Uh, they were... They, they would attend the Sabbath regularly, so they, had a, they, they treasured the Word of God. They heard from the Word of God. They sought to apply God's Word in their lives. And so these people would not be very different from these people, right? The fact that you're even here on a Sunday morning, that you re, if you're regularly here and you regularly listen to the Word of God and you treasure it and you want to apply it in your life means that you probably weren't all that different from Paul's first audience here. And so, really, the thing, the, the thing that most strikes me about this passage is that what Paul thinks these good people, and I say that in air quotes, good people need to hear is 
Jesus. They need to hear the good news. That's what Paul brings to them. The unrelenting theme of Paul's message is grace. God's undeserved kindness. That's what, that's what ties, that's the thread that, that Paul is pulling on as he goes through this sermon. That, that God has not given us what we deserve, but rather he has shown us grace. So let's look at how Paul unpacks this grace. First, he, he gives us a history lesson. He talks about the history of grace. Then he shows us the high point of grace and then the promises of grace. What is it that God promises to do for us in his grace? I'd hope to actually cover all the way in uh, to the end of chapter 13, but that was going to be a little ambitious. So uh, we'll save that for next time. We'll see how people respond to the grace that God provides. But first, let's talk about history. Why does, why does Paul give this kind of expanded, or really it's a summarized history lesson at the beginning of his speech. Why, why does he do that? And why does he quote from the Old Testament scriptures? Well, remember where he is. He's in a synagogue. He's with Jewish people and with Gentile God-fearers. He says that twice. So these are people who would have known the Bible. They would have known what we call the Old Testament. They would have been familiar with these stories. Uh, and they would have considered it to be true. And so if you're trying to prove something that you believe, if you believe something to be true and you want someone else to believe it, what do you need to do? Well, you need to supply evidence. You need to give backup. You need to give background to, to what it is you're saying. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He doesn't begin with the message of Jesus. He actually begins with where they are. He finds the common ground, and we're going to see Paul do this again and again and again, that whenever he comes to an audience, he finds the common ground, right? He doesn't, he doesn't preach like this every time because he's not always speaking to a Jewish audience who would have understood this background. So the way, the frame for his message will change. It will adjust based on the culture to which he speaks. But the message of grace in Jesus remains the same. So the history of grace, right? He begins by showing these Jewish people that uh, he, he begins by reminding them of all of the ways that God had shown grace to their forefathers. God had chosen them, right? That uh, Abraham was not looking for God. Abraham wasn't looking for another God to worship. He probably had a good few to work with, Right? But God came to Abraham and called him out of his idolatry. God chose Abraham and the Jewish forefathers. And he made them great in Egypt. And then he was the one who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. They didn't do that themselves. God did that. And what you see as Paul marches through is he keeps focusing the, 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 the main actor in the drama is God. God did this. God did this. Then he did this, and God did this. God put up with them in the wilderness. Uh, I love that. Uh, I love that phrase. I wonder how often in your house uh, have you ever said the words, I'm done. I'm done. Right? That happens. I won't say it happens on a weekly basis in our house. It might. Um, probably not in your house. Um, but, right, maybe it's with your children that you're finally just like, that's it. Fed up. Done. 
which is funny because I don't know. Like we're we're all liars when we say that. Like we, like no, but you're not putting them out on the street. You're not driving them to the bus station. I don't know why you keep saying you're done. You're not done, right? But we say it. Um, maybe painfully you've had that uh, experience with a friend uh, where you reached your limit and you just finally had to say, "I'm done." Um, maybe. Maybe you've said those words or thought those words in conflict with, uh, with a spouse if you're married. You've said, I'm, I'm done. Or you thought, man, I'm just so fed up. But notice, notice what God's heart is. God does not say, I'm done. God does not say, I am, I am so fed up with you. No, it says God puts up. God bears with. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that part of the Bible, with, uh, with the, the story of Israel's journey through the wilderness, if you were to read, say, Exodus 14 through, like, Deuteronomy, you would see that God, that the people give God ample reasons. They give him plenty of reasons to say, okay, now I'm done. That's it. But he never does. He never gives up. He never, he never quits on them, even though they quit on him. So this morning, how do you view God's disposition? What do you think God's face is towards you? Do you feel like God is just kind of fed up with you? That he's just kind of tapping his foot? Man, I sure do wish Paul would get his act together. You know what? One more. I'm getting one, one more and that's it. People, you know, we like to say that maybe in Christianity we believe in second chances. We don't believe in second chances. We believe in second, third, fourth, fifth, 20, 30, 40, 100. Right? God, God bears with his people. His disposition towards us is one of love and mercy. God is not fed up. God is not done. And we see that in the fact that he continues to provide leaders for his people. He continues to provide saviors for his people. He brings them judges and prophets and kings. And he brings them King David, a man after his own heart. And this is, at this point is where Paul moves from the history of grace to the high point of grace. It's as if God has been carrying his people up a mountain. Uh, and, he, and they finally get to the point, the top of the mountain, where they can see what it's all about. And what we realize when we get to the top of the mountain, that the high point of grace is Jesus himself. That Jesus is the culmination of everything that God was doing all along. Paul is a master communicator. He begins with their shared, uh, where, where they are, he begins with, their, with their, what they've got in common And then he shows them how Jesus connects to that. He shows them that Jesus is the promised Savior. right? God promised through prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that he would bring a Savior from David's line. And he did. And his name is Jesus. Every judge, every prophet, every king points to Jesus as the true king, as the true Savior. He is God's high point. He is the high point of grace. But this is where the story kind of takes an odd, puzzling turn. Because if you know anything about the life of Jesus, you wouldn't exactly look at it and say, ah, a high point. In fact, a lot about Jesus' life doesn't look like a high point at all. It looks like a very low point. 
And it's possible that these people would have heard, they're, they're Jewish, they would have traveled to Jerusalem, they may have even been in Jerusalem uh, during the Passover when Jesus was crucified. So it's very possible that they would have heard about Jesus. And when Paul says, Jesus is the Savior, they probably would have said, do what? Wasn't that the guy who got executed on a cross outside the city? Doesn't, doesn't our law say that anybody who's hung on a tree is cursed by God? That Jesus? He's the true Savior, the one who died a cursed death? That would have been very puzzling for them to hear. And so Paul walks them through. He's walked them through the Old Testament story. Now he walks them through the Jesus story. And he talks about Jesus' life and death and how the Jewish leaders, who were very familiar with the Scriptures, totally missed everything they said about Jesus. They totally missed their Messiah. And they had him condemned and executed. But the beauty, even in that, right, even in that, God's grace is present. Because what, is, what does Paul say there in verses 27 through 29? That even though they, were, they, they missed Jesus, they actually fulfilled the prophets by condemning Jesus. So even though they were actively working against God's Messiah, they were fulfilling God's plan all along. And then it says when they had, verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. So they did everything in accordance with God's plan, even though they didn't mean to. I had a good friend some years ago who would regularly tell me, Kevin, you're not nearly important enough to mess up God's plan. And that's wonderful news. Even, even God's enemies cannot frustrate God's plan. That God uses the greatest evil ever perpetrated in human history, the death of the only innocent man to ever live, he uses that to bring salvation. That's the high, even though that looks like a low point to us, that is the high point of grace. And God raised him from the dead, and he appeared to many witnesses, and now here's Paul proclaiming this Jesus in Pisidia, Pisidian Antioch. Now, here's what we glean from this. Paul could have said, said many, many things. He could have gone many, many directions. But it's interesting to me that Paul's message is substantially the same as Stephen's message and Peter's message. In fact, it's the only message that Christianity has. It's the gospel. It's the good news of what God has done in Jesus. Y'all, that's all we've got. You may, be, you may have been coming here for, for many, many Sundays, and you may be thinking, man, he says the same thing every Sunday. And you know what? I do. Because it's all we've got. Right? There are lots of things we believe. There are lots of things that make up a robust biblical worldview. But at the core and center of it all is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's where... That's where eternal life is. That's where change lives. That's, that's what we've got, folks. Right? You, may, you may think that right, the, the, the cross and the tomb, those are the way we come into the Christian life. But surely there's more after that. 
right? Let's move on, right? I got it. I prayed the prayer. I checked that box. Let's move on. Friends, there's nothing more, right? We don't need to move on from the gospel. We need to, as C.S. Lewis says, move further up and further in to the gospel. That there are depths in the gospel that we have yet to fully plumb. And that we, will be, that we will be made into the image of Jesus the more we learn to apply this good news uh, to our hearts at deeper and deeper levels. This is, this is where we camp out because it's where the church camped out, right? So the message of Christianity is Christ. Let's never forget the, the main thing. And the reason we continually reemphasize that story is because of the promises that it offers us. The promises of grace are two, and you see them in verses 38 and 39. There's actually more, but there's two that Paul mentions here. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So there's two promises that Paul offers here. One is forgiveness, and two is freedom. Forgiveness, release, release from guilt. Now, we live in a day and an age when, you know, morality is kind of squishy, right? So, so it's hard to know what's right and wrong anymore. But you know what? Even, even, though, that, even though that slide is happening, even though, you know, there's, there's differing degrees of what people think are right and wrong... Has that sense of guilt gone away? Right? Like, we still are plagued by a deep sense of guilt that we, are, that we are in the wrong and that we need to be released from it. And what Paul says is that forgiveness, release from guilt, is offered only in Jesus. I mentioned debt earlier in the service. Imagine... Uh, that I borrowed $500,000 from you, uh, and I was unable to pay that back. And so I, I pleaded for your mercy. And so you forgave the loan, right? So, so I borrowed the money, you forgave the loan, and that, right, does, does that kind of make everything square? Does that zero it all out? Where, where did that $500,000 go? Who paid it? Well, you did, Right? When we forgive someone, we are actually embracing the cost of that forgiveness ourselves. The price still has to be paid. I know we love free stuff, but actually, right, nothing is actually free. Someone absorbs that cost. And in the case of our guilt over sin, that person is Jesus. He willingly absorbs the cost so that we can be forgiven. And that leads to the second promise, freedom. Paul says you can be freed from everything that the law could not free you from. The word for freedom here is translated elsewhere, justified. It's a legal term. In our case, in our day, we would say not guilty. But in Paul's day, if you went to court, what you wanted to hear the judge say, when all the things were reviewed and we compared you with the law, what you wanted to hear the judge say was justified. And what Paul tells us, and what Paul tells these good people, good people, is you cannot be justified by the law. 
Now, again, that would have shocked them. These were good people, right? Let's be honest. If you, if you had to choose between hanging out with, you know, non-obnoxious, self-righteous people or really bad people, like whose kids do you want to play with? Well, my, I want my kids to play with the self-righteous people's kids because they're going to do everything right, right? They're the, they're the good people. They vote the right way. They live the right way. They pay all their bills. But what Paul says is you cannot, there, there are no good people. Whether, whether, a, whether somebody has died of natural causes or they died a gruesome death, right? their corpses may look very different. But you know what? They're both still dead. You cannot be justified by keeping the law, Paul says. The way to become justified, the way to be declared not guilty is in Jesus. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's, what, that's the promise that grace offers us. That we can be forgiven and we can be freed. Uh, Pastor Randy Pope, uh, in his book, The Answer, says that there are really two kinds of Christianity out there. Right? We can live in, in, in two narratives. One says, we lost a lot, he did a lot, and we get a lot. So, we lost a lot. You know, we, 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 we're guilty, but we're not, we're not that bad. There's a little bit of goodness left. And if there's a little bit of goodness less than, left, then, then Jesus only has to do a lot. And he did a lot. But I mean, there's a little bit left for me to do. And then, of course, we would get a lot. Now, maybe you see the problem with living in that version of Christianity. I think it's right. Well, I mean, there's a problem with all three, but right there in the middle. If Jesus did a lot and there's something left for you to do, how much would be enough? How much would free you? How much would forgive you? Thankfully, there's a, the real version of Christianity. It's the version that Paul preaches here. We lost it all. Jesus did it all. And we get it all. That's the offer of grace, friend. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we would become the righteousness of God. I hope you believe that this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for confirming to us that we are not the good people we think we are. That we cannot be justified by the law. We cannot be freed by the law. We must be freed by you and by what you have done for us in Jesus. I pray that every soul in the room would receive and rest upon Christ alone as he is offered in this gospel. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.